for a few minutes tonight. I want to talk about something that, and I say this, I say this as kindly as I can. This is my 35th anniversary of full-time ministry. Not as long as some, a little bit longer than others. But after 35 years of doing this, 25 of those living the hardcore ghetto life in New York City, I have had to contend with what does it, listen to me, what does it honestly take to make a difference in a nation? In America, we have a lot of cute little cliches. I walk into churches, and they have this typical banner up front says, changing our city. Most of those people can't even change their socks, let alone change their cities. They wouldn't even know where to start. And I have to laugh, and yet when you sit back and look at it, and you see folks that I believe, I believe, want to make a difference, I think their intentions are good. I think somewhere inside themselves, they have a desire most of you know, in my country, as in your country, as in probably every nation that's represented. If we have the desire, please don't miss this, if we have the desire, and I believe many do, they have the intentions, and yet still, still, we just can't quite seem to be the influence in the world that we could be. So I'm asking you tonight. I'm asking you. And before we get out of here in a few minutes, everybody is going to have to answer this question somehow. I don't know you. I don't need to know you. I know people. I've lived on the street most of my life. I still live technically in the street. I have chosen to live that kind of life because I'm never really too far from the urgency of life. And the urgency demands a response. Tonight, for a few minutes, I want you to, want you to walk with me. Because, see, when Jesus appeared to the disciples for the first time in his resurrected body, do you remember what he said? He had to say, fear not. Fear not. Why did Jesus have to tell them, don't be afraid? He told them what he was going to do. He told them how he was going to do it. He told them when he was going to do it. But when he did it, they thought he was a ghost. How can you live with someone for three years and still not understand them. How can you be in that close of a proximity to the miracles, to the mandate, to the message that you see day after day after day and still, and still not get it, not get it, not even close. And he had to say, fear not. But when he appeared the second time one week later, what did he say? Peace be still. Isn't that interesting? The first time, it was fear not. But one week later, all he had to say was, peace be still. You know why it went that way? You know how it worked? I'm going to tell you how. When you are confronted, well, you better get this. When you are confronted with something that is outside your framework of normalcy, I don't care how smart you are, how spiritual you think you are, how long you've been in this thing, none of that matters, folks. Because all of us have built some kind of a framework of reference. Could be based on your culture, maybe. 
could be based on your background, could be based upon your religious upbringing. But all of you in this place, every last one of you, has a framework of reference that you have chosen to build your life around. And when that is challenged, no matter how it's challenged, but when it is challenged, the first instinct is to take a step back because it's not what you're used to. It's not what you normally hear. It's not what your religious upbringing. I was raised classic Pentecostal. I only admit that when it's convenient. But I was raised in the old school, in the old church. So my framework of thinking, my framework of evaluating things was based on that old school box, that old school paradigm. So when I ask you tonight, what is it honestly going to take to change a nation? If I was to go up and down the rows, especially with the leadership represented from the nations, I'm sure all of you would have a different opinion that would be based on your culture, on the folks that you minister to, on your religious background, and we would probably have as many different answers as I would ask people that question. But I'm wondering tonight, is there, how can I say this, is there a common denominator? Don't miss this. Is there a common denominator that runs throughout the continent of Africa, that stretches across Asia, that moves across North America, down to the south across Europe, is there something, some factor? And I'm looking at you tonight, representatives from all over this world, and I'm telling you, if you get close enough to the wounds in the body of Christ, we talk about caring, we talk about compassion, we know all the buzzwords, don't we? Yeah, we can spit them out. We can regurgitate that stuff. We are experts at talking about what is supposed to be done. But I'm looking at you and I'm telling you, if you get close enough to touch the wounds in the body of Christ, you understand what I'm saying? And I was trying to communicate this to this bunch of pastors and I'm at the table There's these women are upset with me because they couldn't figure out why I still drive the Sunday school bus I'm the pastor of the biggest Sunday school in the world and I still drive they couldn't figure out how come the senior pastor still drives the bus so I'm trying to be nice you know because I just got done preaching so you don't want to look like an idiot so, you know, I'm, I'm standing here, and she's just, you know how it goes. And, and I'll tell you this. Nobody else will tell you this. But when a guest speaker takes you by your hand and starts walking with you, that means they're trying to get rid of you. They are walking you away. So I'm thinking, this is my last chance. I take her hand, and I'm, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm walking her away. And finally, I get her to the end of the table. I said, I got it. And I walk back, and she just walked right back with me. <laughs> I could not get rid of this woman. So I'm frustrated now. And, I, you know, I can be nice for a while, but I live in Brooklyn. You know what I'm saying? You know, it's just like, don't push it past the limit. And she was right at the limit. So I don't know what to do. She won't let up. I'm trying, I can't get rid of her. But down this end of the table, there's an older man. I'm saying older, maybe probably late 70s, I would think. He's just watching me deal fairly unsuccessfully with this woman. He's just watching the show. 
Well, I'm right at the edge. Now watch this. He comes around the table. I'll never forget this. He comes around the table like this. Comes right up to the woman. I mean right up to her. Right in her face. He does the two fingers. Not that meaning that's a New York thing. I don't know where he got it. Because it didn't sound like he was from the city. But he does the finger in the face thing. He comes right up to this woman. It just goes like this. And he says, lady, you have no idea what this man does, why he does it, because you don't have a shepherd's heart. So you need to shut up, get out of here, and just leave him alone. Well, I took a step back. Because you know, it's church. You never know what's going to happen. You just don't know. I've, I've been in enough fistfights in church. You never know how it's going to go. So I took a step back, and I'm thinking, if this doesn't do it, this woman's going home with me. She ain't leaving. If this doesn't do it, ain't nothing going to do it. Well, she got the, you know, the deer in the headlights look. You know, she's shocked that somebody would do this. So I'm just standing back going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's right. And it did it. She just got all mad. You know, when a woman doesn't have the last word, you all know how it goes. Now, I don't mean no disrespect, but you all know how it goes. So she just, uh, looked like she was having an attack. And as she grabbed her friend, turned out, walked off. I thought, well, praise God. It worked. And I didn't think much about it until I got back to the hotel that night. And I was kind of going over the day in my mind. And I was thinking about the, the table thing. And I thought, now wasn't that interesting? Wasn't that interesting? That old man, he didn't know me. He didn't know me. He heard me preach the one time. I didn't even talk to him. Because as soon as he ran her off, he left. So I'm just standing there going, what just happened here? They left, he's gone, and I'm standing there wondering. He said what? He said, I had a shepherd's heart. That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't know me. We never had, listen to me, listen to me. We never had a conversation. Somewhere, somehow, what? He picked something up, I guess. He saw something. Please don't miss this in Jesus' name. He saw something. He picked up something. Don't know. Didn't get a chance to talk to him. But he said, I had a shepherd's heart. I was captivated. When I played the thing back in my head, I thought, how'd that work? Where'd he come up with that? I got back to the city, started going through my books. Got the concordance out, everything. Sheep, shepherd, heart, <laughs> anything. I'm looking at my man, I'm, I'm on a mission. Trying to figure out what did this guy see, hear, feel, experience. Couldn't get it. Couldn't get it. Could not make sense of any of it. Didn't make sense. The 99 and the 1. <laughs> that that doesn't, make, doesn't fit. The 23rd Psalm. That didn't fit. So now I'm mad. Now I'm more mad than what I was with the woman. Because I can't figure this thing out. I thought, well, it was one of those things. It was a church thing. <laughs> Just forget it. And I had one more verse. Watch this. I had one more verse that I had not looked up. I thought, man, eh, I might as well finish it up. So I flipped open, and I read this one verse. And I thought, hmm. That's interesting. It's in the Old Testament. It's actually in one of the prophetical books, one of the minor prophets. And it's, it's one of those verses that if you're not careful, you just kind of, you miss it. You know what I mean? You ever do that? Where you, just, you can read something ten times, and then, you, and then you read it one more time. And it's like, how come I didn't get that? One verse in the book of Amos the third chapter. Because it's written prophetically, 
to God's people. And, and if you know anything about the background, I don't want to spend a lot of time with this, but you've got the prophet speaking to the people prophetically, try, trying, trying desperately, desperately to prepare them for what is coming ahead. There was going to be tough times ahead. And the old man, the old prophet, sees something through prophetic eyes. And for a couple minutes tonight, if we can look at what the old prophet said, and maybe the old man in Dallas, maybe this is what he had in mind. I don't know. I can never prove it. I've never seen him again. But maybe. But if you can look at this 12th verse in the third chapter of the book of Amos. Hmm. An interesting little illustration. And basically, that's what it is. It is not a, it's not written in a parabolic form. It's not a long story line. But it's extremely illustrative. And if you can see tonight, stay with me. If you can see tonight through the eyes of the prophet, if you can see beyond your nation, beyond your religious paradigm, beyond your background, beyond the little life that you have tried to create for yourself. Hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe for the few minutes we have, maybe we can see what it really does take. What it really does take to get from where we are into a place that puts you in the position to do something that has never been done in your city, in your nation. See, that's what bothers I, I love coming to Britain. I, I love the people. I feel like I've kind of found a home here. I, I, I feel I connect people with people sometimes better here than I even do in the States. But you know what bothers me here? You guys love to talk about Whitfield, Wesley, Spurgeon. You love to talk about the good old days, don't you? You relish in it. You're proud of it, and justifiably so. But I've got to ask you the same question. What's going on now? What's going on now? I don't say this with any disrespect. There was a time and a place for that. But instead of building on the foundation that was laid for us by some of the great men and women that were our forefathers, that gave us the religious heritage in this nation that was transferred to my nation, instead of building on the foundation, we sat on the foundation. And now, this nation is on the verge of a moral collapse. And we wonder why. The prophet is trying to communicate something to the people. You better get this, folks. You better get this. He's communicating it through one simple illustration. How can, how can a truth so profound be illustrated so proficiently in one tiny, obscure little verse. I want you to take a look at it for just a minute. See if it makes sense to you. Amos chapter 3, verse 12. If you can, for a few minutes, try to look through the eyes of the prophet and see what he sees and feel and feel what he's feeling. It's a simple illustration. There's actually three characters. You can see it for yourself. It's an illustration about a lion and a lamb and the shepherd. Don't miss it. The lion, the lamb, and the shepherd. And it's obvious from the text. And I'm not going to give you the Hebrew on this. I think it's, it's clear enough pretty much in, uh, in the English. For some reason... We don't know why, because again, it's not a complete story, but it's a tremendous illustration. For some reason, the lamb gets caught 
in the jaws of the lion. Doesn't say how. Doesn't say why. Maybe that's not the important part, is it? Maybe, maybe it's not important of how the lamb was caught. But the very fact that the lamb is caught, somehow the thing is in the grips of the lion. And then the shepherd in his rounds, I don't know. In an inspection, I don't know. But we can clearly see the shepherd shows up and he sees this lamb caught in the jaws of the lion. I love you guys. And I'd love to stand up here as a guest speaker to all of you from around the world and tell you that when this conference is over, you are going to have a myriad of options as leaders, as pastors, as administrators. You're going to have all these options as a believer. But the truth is, when this thing's over and you're out of here, you know how many options you have? You have two. Look at me. You got two. Not three, not four. You got two. See, we think, and I like so much of what you were saying earlier. We've got all of these little dog and pony shows in the States. And now they're kind of filtering in over here. You know, seeker-friendly, purpose-driven. If we would spend half as much time in the Bible as we do reading these books, it, boy, there's no telling what we could do. Because everybody's looking for a shortcut. Everybody's looking for a quick fix. Instead of studying the Word and applying it, we, we, we want to try to find some way to circumvent. Yeah, some kind of gimmick. Something, something. I understand that. The shepherd sees the lamb, and the reality is he has two choices, and that's it. Look at me. Two choices, that's it, mister. He can look at it, and he can say in his mind, well, the lamb's caught. There's really, the damage is done. There's really not much I can do. I have not been trained technically to deal with this. I'm not sure what to do. Maybe my time would be better spent going back to the, going back to the sheep that are not caught. I'm not trained. I'm not qualified. I'm just the, the shepherd. Never been in this situation before. So it's probably easier for me to just step away and let what apparently is going to happen just happen. Just let it happen. It's beyond now my control. Or, or, the shepherd can look at it and say, things caught, looks bad. I'm not trained for this. I'm not qualified. There's others that need me. The rest of the sheep need me. It would probably be to my advantage because of the, what's the word I want to use? Because of the, the direness of the situation I probably should go, but I just can't walk away. So my question to you tonight is, what's the difference? What is the difference between the one that sees it, is aware of it, decides to step out or the one that sees it same scene same scenario same drama but yet just can't bring himself to walk away what's the difference the bottom line is folks right here right here right here at the scene at the scene you got two choices. When the shepherd showed up, watch this. When the shepherd showed up, he either walks because he figures it's over anyway, or he tries to do something. Now I can see, and you can as well, 
that apparently this shepherd, in a desire for some strange reason, decides, I'm going to try to do something. And it's obvious here that he, he, he maybe doesn't know exactly what to do, but you can see that he reaches over. Now watch this. He reaches over and takes a leg of this limb. The thing is in the jaws of the lion. It's in the jaws. It's caught. It's caught. The damage is done. But he reaches over and he grabs a leg of the lamb. And, and he's, he's, he's going like this. He's trying to pull the thing, obviously, out of the jaws of the lion. And in his desire to do something, he grabs a leg of the lamb. And in his desperation, in his intent, in his desire to do something. He's trying so hard, so hard. He pulls a leg of the lamb off. Now watch me, watch me. When I read that, and I did a word study on this, I thought, and my Pentecostal mind kicked in. See, because again, I'm just like you. I'm a product of my religious paradigm. And my Pentecostal mindset immediately went into gear. And I thought, okay, he tried. He tried. He made an effort. He made, he made a shot at it. He tried. It was, it was almost, it was almost as if this particular shepherd when he saw this, it was almost instinctive. Almost instinctive. Have you ever noticed with some folks, not with all Christians, you know this is true, but with some folks, some leaders around the world, not all of them, some religious denominations, not all of them, but for some, when they see a scenario like this, it's almost an instinct with some people that they just want to do something, just want to help, do something. Why is it that in most churches, 20% of the people end up doing 80% of all the work? We've said the 80-20 rule. Most of you know it. And it's true around the world. It's true all over the world. Not just in Great Britain. Not just in America. All over the world. There's that small minority of folks in the church that for some reason, when they see a need, I'll do it. Need somebody clean the bathroom? I'll do it. Need somebody go soul winning? I'll do it. Need somebody drive the bus? I'll do it. While the other folks sit back and want to live vicariously through the work of this small group of people that nobody understands. They're nuts, aren't they? They're looked down on. They're criticized by the rest of the church because they're wondering, what's these people's motives? What are they doing? They're trying to buddy up to the pastor? Why, why is it that it seems like they're always out there doing it and the other folks just never seem to get it? He goes over and almost instinctively tries to do something. But now he is standing there. Watch me. He is standing there holding a leg of the lamb. He's watching this thing. And now, and now, it would appear. Watch this. Watch the second observation. It's nice to do something to help. You want to do something, you see a need. It's kind of a kind of this churchy Christian little instinct. So you try to do something, but the minute it doesn't work, or it doesn't appear to be getting the results that you think it should, and you look at it and you think, this is hopeless. I tried. I tried. But this is hopeless. So now, see, in my Pentecostal mind, this is the time when the shepherd probably should say, I'm out. See, because when you perceive something is hopeless, in your mind, when you come to that conclusion, 
the easiest thing to do is say, I tried. I tried working with that group of kids, and it didn't work. I tried in my family, and it didn't work. I tried in my city, and it didn't work. I tried. But now it looks hopeless. So when you perceive that it's hopeless, that's when you do what? Step out. Step out. When you think that that's it, nothing else can be done. So you take a step back and say, well, I tried. Let me tell you something, pal. Trying's not good enough anymore. It ain't good enough no more. And in my Pentecostal mindset, I would have thought when he saw the first time he tried, it didn't work, it's hopeless, the thing's dying, he steps out of the equation, but it says he goes back a second time. He goes back a second time. For what? What? What you going to do? The thing is dying, man. A nation is dying. Corruption in some of the countries of the world are killing the people. And the church is impotent. Sits back. And I don't know which is worse. Some corrupt government or some nothing church. I'll let you answer that yourself. Instead of walking, he goes back a second time and he grabs another leg. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. He grabs a second leg. And why is that? Why is it that some people do this? He grabs a second leg and he's, he's trying to do something. He's trying. And in desperation, he pulls off a second leg. Two legs, gone. Now watch this. Watch this. See, it's one thing to instinctively try to help. That's the nice Christian thing. Let's, let's try to do something nice. Let's try to do something. That's one thing. It's unusual when somebody goes back a second time when they perceive that this thing is over, it's hopeless, it's dead. This city is dead. This village is dead. This nation is done. It's over. Because see, that's what they told me when I went to New York. They told me all that stuff. And now, instinctively he tried. Didn't seem like he got anywhere. He went back, even in spite of it looking hopeless, and now he's got two legs gone. So now, in my, in my little pea brain, Pentecostal mind, I'm thinking, if he goes back a third time, watch me, if he goes back a third time, once the lion is finished with the lamb, guess who the lion's going to turn on? In a last effort, he reaches over, knowing where he's stepping, knowing that at any moment, this thing could turn on him in a heartbeat. And now he's putting himself on the line. He's putting himself on the line. He's putting his life, he's putting his health, he's putting everything that he has on the line. And you know what he does? It says he reaches over and he pulls off a piece of the lamb's ear. Why would you do that? Why would you risk your life when it looks like it's not going to make any difference anyway? Why would he do that when it's in your heart? When it's in your heart, it moves you. And it's more than just an instinct. You stay. And even when it looks hopeless, you stay. And for some stupid, unknown reason, he reaches over at the risk of his own life. And he pulls off a piece of the lamb's ear. Two legs. 
in a piece of an ear. How does that work? How does that work? How is it that some people, no matter what the cost, no matter what the location, no matter what the circumstances or consequences, some folks just don't walk away, do they? I'll tell you this. I'll let you go. When David Livingston went to Africa, he was part of a Baptist denomination here. They all thought he was crazy. Many of you know the story. They said, you're nuts. Why are you going there? You're going to die. If you've read anything about Livingston or you've read part of his papers, you will remember that he would always respond with the same phrase. He said, my heart is in Africa. How did it all start? He heard his father-in-law, Robert Moffat, preaching in a university right here in central London. Livingston was sitting in the balcony, and his father-in-law was preaching and made one statement. He said, I saw the smoke of a thousand villages where the gospel has never been preached. Somebody needs to go. And Livingston said to himself, is that all it takes? You just need somebody to go? No audible voice like most of you need. No burning bush. No pillar of fire. He said, You mean I can go? I can go. Yeah, you can go. He goes. He goes. He goes. No big calling. No big hoopla. He just goes. And even when he almost got his left arm chewed off by a lion in the bush, they all thought, he's going home now. The denomination said, come home. You know what he said? He said, my heart is in Africa. You can read it in his memoirs. Consistently, my heart is in Africa. You know how they found him? You know how they found him? He was like this. His head was like this on his cot in a rainstorm alone by himself. He died in prayer. All alone. Two of his converts found him. They sent a wire back here to the Baptist denomination. They said, your man's dead. We'll bury him here. We know that's what he'd want. They sent a wire back and said, no, 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 we're going we're gonna to bring him back here to London. We're going to give him a hero, hero's burial. He's one of ours. See, when he was out doing it, they all thought he was crazy. Because that's how it works. See, when you're doing something for God, everybody thinks you're a nut. But when you die, then they write books about you. Then they name schools after you. That's what we all have to look forward to. I can hardly wait. <laughs> At least I know that's how it's going to go. So don't be shocked. When you see my name on the side of a building by the same people who thought I was an idiot because they never got it. They never got it. They sent a wire back, said, please, please, we know him. We know him. He would want to be buried here. Three days later, the wire came back. They said, you wrap him up, you take him to the coast of Mozambique. There's a ship that's going to come get him. We're going to bring him home. We're going to bury him in Westminster Abbey with the royalty. If you know the story, you know what happened. They walked him almost 600 miles. They wrapped him up. They walked him to the coast. It was about three and a half weeks later. The ship docked. They were ready to load his body on the ship to bring him here. But if you know your history... You know what happened. The night before, they were going to load his body on the boat to take him back to London. A couple of his converts broke in to where his body was. They pried open the casket. They took a knife and they cut his heart out of his body and they put it in a burlap bag. They stole his heart. He stole his heart. If you have never been to the Abbey, you need to go. Most of you, I'm sure, from here have been. Maybe I'm not sure. Because maybe this doesn't interest you. 
But go into the west entrance, go into the nave, big huge auditorium. Over here is where Charles Dickens is buried. Over here is some of the royalty. But you go right here, right here, dead center. Go, go, see it. This isn't something you see on American Christian TV. This is actually true. Go right there. It has a big old bronze tombstone. David Livingston's body is buried. Oh, yeah. But if you ever get to Africa, up on the northwest corner on the Rwanda-Tanzania border, a little tiny village, I believe you pronounce it Bagamoyo, a little tree outside the village, and there was a hand-carved sign. I saw it once. Hand-carved on the tree. It says, at the bottom of this tree is buried David Livingston's heart. His heart was always with us. Now it'll be with us forever. How did the people know that? How'd they know that? How did they know to do that? I guess when you've got a shepherd's heart, people just know it, don't they? I guess they just know it. The old man said at the table, he said, I had a shepherd's heart. I don't understand at all still. Maybe someday I'll understand it better. But I stand in front of you tonight as the result of one man who saw the little boy sitting on the street corner for three days he was not a pastor. He was not an evangelist. He was on his way home from work <laughs> on a Wednesday night in 1961. And he saw me with holes in my pants. And I stuttered so bad I couldn't talk. Uh, uh, uh. And sometimes even when I try to talk fast, I feel it coming back. My mother walked this man picked me up, sent me to a Pentecostal youth camp. I'd never been to church. I responded to the altar call. But because I couldn't talk and because I was dirty, because I had no other clothes, nobody would even pray with me. So I sat there alone. Again. Again. But that night, sitting there by myself, knowing that my mother doesn't want me, knowing that the Christians don't want me, for the first time in my life, I felt like somebody loved me. That doesn't make sense. But when you come into the presence of God, you don't always need a counselor, do you? So I have spent my life, my entire adult life, trying to get little kids that were just like me. Do you know now why I drive the bus? Do you get it now? Do you get it? That's why I drive the bus. That's why I'll always drive the bus. Because every week, I'm picking up me. That's me. That's me. So what does it take then to change a nation? What does it take to change a city? We can talk about all the resources. That's nice. Talk about all the facilities. That's a bonus. Talk about all of the things that it would be nice to have. That's nice. But you know what it is? This it, man. Right here. Because no matter how sick you are, no matter how tired you are, no matter how sick of getting on planes you are, there's still something that drives you. That drives you. And it comes from the heart. Because when you've got a shepherd's heart, you can't walk away. You can't. Two legs. And a piece of an ear. There's a nation in the balance tonight. There are cities in the balance tonight. 
this isn't just another conference, folks. This is a burning bush for some of you. This is holy ground. This is holy ground. Because some of your lives and the rest of your ministries are going to be determined by what happens right here. I want you to bow your head all over this place, please. Please, heads bowed and eyes closed. Phil, I want you to play that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, if you will, please. I ask that nobody else move around, please, please, in respect to what the Spirit of God's doing here. Why is it that somebody can be out in a little remote bush village and totally take that thing for Jesus Christ when people that live in industrialized nations that have everything going for them still can't even figure out what it is that the church is supposed to be? How can it be? How can it be? How can it be? It's all out there, folks. It's all out there. But I'm asking you, what kind of heart do you have? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm going to count. When I get to that number three, we're going to sing. And I'm going to ask you, if the Spirit of God's speaking to you and you realize it's just showtime now, we've played the game, we've talked the talk, We've gone through the motions. We know all the right answers. So I'm asking you. I'm asking you, mister, ma'am, I'm asking you. If you're ready to let him give you a new heart, a heart that beats for your nation, a heart that beats for the souls of men and women, for another generation, I'm asking you. If the Spirit of God's speaking to you when we get to three, I want you to get out of your seat and meet me here. I don't want you to walk. I want you to run. I want you to get up here. If you've got to step on somebody, step on them. But I want you to get up here. They're already coming. The Spirit of God's speaking to you. If God's speaking to you, I'm putting it on you now. I'm putting it on you. One, heads are bowed and eyes are closed. This is a very personal thing. We're talking about the heart. We're talking about a lifetime. We're talking about taking a piece of an ear when it looks like it's hopeless. Two, it's up to you now. It's up to you. Three, come on, sing it. Open the eyes of my heart. Come, come, come. Come on, let's go. Let's go. If that's your prayer, let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Come on, pull tight. Come on. Come on. Come on. Thank God. Nations are represented. Come on. Come on. Get out of your seat.
you know look up at me a heart's cry is a thing so necessary put that with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you have everything you have the answer to everything when the compassion of a heart moves you and you have the answer of the gospel of Jesus Christ that breaks every power then you have the answer the whole conference has been on the gospel now the hearts cry so often people they, they speak but it's not from their heart it doesn't come from inside It's not a dogma, it's not a philosophy. It's a life. When it's the gospel, there is no power greater than the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no power in heaven or earth, under the earth, that can resist the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of this one who came to redeem us, body, soul, and spirit. And when the heart is engaged and a compassion's flow, that's when miracles happen. Come here. That's when everything changes. Give me both your hands. There's power to break every bondage. His wounds took the pain. His heart was pierced through. His brow took the thorns. His feet took the nails. There's healing. There's healing. You know, there's healing. Healing's here. Come with power, power. Two thousand years ago, he took the deformity into his own body. It's going to break. It's going to break. It's going to break in your life this day. This very day, this very hour. It's all going to change. We have a power in the gospel. We have good news. He's a good God. He comes with power and healing in his wings. He comes to deliver and break every yoke. He's the answer to every need. There's no other name under heaven whereby a man can be saved.
by the name of Jesus. When our hearts move with compassion and the gospel burns inside, we've got good news to tell people. Hey, it doesn't have to be this way anymore. It doesn't have to be this way. We have a King of Kings, a Lord of Lords. And we go to the hopeless and the helpless and we say, there's an answer. There's an answer. There's an answer. I know there's an answer. He is the answer. He is the one who comes. The impossible is possible. <laughs> yeah, I speak it. I know I've been there. No one can tell me. <laughs> no one can tell me it's not so. Because I know it's so. When I was in Argentina years ago with my wife, and I went to a big meeting, and at the end of the meeting, miracle after miracle happened, and a woman came up and she had a blanket all wrapped round. I couldn't see what it was. And she came up at the end when everything was over. And her husband came with her. And it was a little baby. And its legs and its hips were all twisted and its feet faced the wrong way. It was grotesque. She pulled the blanket aside and showed me. And she said, can your Jesus do anything for him? And I looked at the baby and I said, give him to me. I took him in my arms. <laughs> and I said, Lord, just restore him. And I gave him back to the woman and I said, He's going to be all right. How did I know? Because I know my father. Some five, five years later, I went back to Argentina after the war was over. The dust had settled. And I was in another convention speaking. And at the end of the convention, a woman pushed away through the crowd and she said oh do you remember me do you remember me I said I'm sorry dear I see so many I don't and then she said do you remember someone with a little baby and the legs were all twisted and the feet pointed the wrong way and it was crippled and it was so grotesque I said oh I remember that and then she pointed a little five-year-old boy running and jumping over the benches totally restored we have a Jesus we have a God who's so able to do the impossible we have a gospel it's good news it's wonderful news we have a hope when the hopeless have no hope we have a truth to tell everything can change my God is the God of hope my God is the one who restores my God is the one who lifts us up my God is the mighty King of Kings and Lord of the Lords there's nothing tonight he cannot do for you there's no disease, no sickness, no bondage, no bounds, no chains he cannot break. There's no habit he cannot loose you from. There's nothing can stop him because his name is Jesus. He has all power in heaven. He has all power on earth. He has all power under the earth. What a God. What a King. What a mighty one. He comes to restore. He comes to take the lame and put them back in the way. 
He comes to take the broken and bind them up. He comes to restore. He loves you. He's good. So, so good. It's the gospel we have. With a heart of compassion and a care for people. When the heart's burning and you can't say no. That's what he's come to do. He wants to bring you out of sin. He wants to bring you out of your selfishness. Out of your living for yourself. And into living for Him. He wants to get you to see He's everything. What a Savior. What a Lord. What a King. I remember when Dima Shikarian told me. He said, this Jesus is going to divide your sin as far as the east is from the west. He's going to remember it no more. He's going to cast it into the depths of the sea. It's going to be as though you'd never, ever sinned in your life. And then he told me, if I just confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus, and I believed in my heart that God had raised him from the dead, I was going to be saved. My, I never heard it. I said to him, I've always believed it. But for the first time in my life, I knew it inside. It came alive for me. Jesus died for me. He took my sin into his own body. He became sin who knew no sin. That I might be made the righteousness of God through him. He did it all. And all I have to do is receive the free gift that he gives. I don't have to do any more. Just to confess, I take you as Lord. Thank you that you shed your blood for me. Thank you. You became sin. You took my sin and your own body. It's over. Hey, it's not mine anymore. Thank you, Jesus. It's gone. Isn't that easy? And then I realized, he told me, you know, he said, if you confess, you'll be saved. And he said, you know, the word there means healed. Hey, there's healing in redemption. When Jesus hung there, healing came. And the Holy Spirit quickened my body. And it was as though a million ton weight lifted off me. And I floated on air. It was over. He broke every curse. He loosed every chain. He birthed me free in the life. Free indeed. And that's the same for you today. Tonight. It's the good news. It's over. Amen. Say what? Well, I'll tell you what. It's that easy. Put your hand on your chest. If you want to make that statement tonight, the Bible makes it clear. If you confess with your mouth, so I want you to do it. Say after me, Dear Lord Jesus, this night I take you as Lord of my life. Thank you. You died for me. Thank you. You became sin. Who knew no sin. You took my sin. Into your body. On the tree. Thank you. You dealt with it. Thank you. 
you died to it. Thank you. On the third day, God the Father raised you from the dead. You came out of the tomb. You're alive. You ascended into heaven. Thank you. You poured out the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost. Thank you you promised. My sin. Is divided from me. As far as the east is from the west. Thank you you remember it no more. It doesn't belong to me anymore. I'm a new person in Christ. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you Jesus. Thank you. It's true. From this day. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to do your will. I'm going to obey you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Amen. Now, God says when you confess it and you believe it with your heart, you're saved. It's as though you never sinned. It's like taking the cold off. Say, put off the old, and you just put on the new. And you say, my, that's it. The old doesn't belong to you anymore. The new belongs to you. Amen? Amen? Hey, you know, if you start testing your body, you'll find God's done a miracle in your body. You'll find God's done a miracle in your life. It's that simple. The gospel is the power of God. He's healing, he's delivering right now. Amen.